0: Curious City intern John Fasile. I have to talk very quietly because WBEZ interns are not supposed to get on the mic. But I just wanted to let you know that we are on a break this week and rather than deprive you of your weekly podcast, I've decided on my own to post this episode we did last year on the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Now, the anniversary of the fire is coming up on October 8th And this story is about how it changed where people lived in the city and what might have been different if that damn cow hadn't knocked over that lantern in the first place. We're working on a bunch of great stories, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode, but I'm going to have to sign off here really quick before I get in trouble. Hey, John, taking a while with that coffee, aren't you? (laughs) Coming right up, boss. Enjoy. When were the... What school's... Who decides what the next?
1: Where's that story? Why
0: they keep the loop? What is this?
1: It's Curious City. Where
2: WBEZ answers your questions
1: about Chicago, the region, and its people. I'm reporter Robert Lorzell.
2: And I'm reporter Katie Clarkson. We're taking on two questions about the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. But before we get to those, here's what you need to know about it.
1: The fire started in a barn on Chicago's near west side on October 8th. As the legend goes, a cow in the O'Leary family barn knocked over a lantern. But historians say that's a myth. Local author Richard Bales believes it was actually one or two of Mrs. O'Leary's neighbors who started the blaze. And then they made her and her cow into scapegoats.
2: Either way, the summer of 1871 was very dry, which made for miles of kindling, and the fire raged for days, spreading north.
1: The air filled with burning embers, the wind blowing fiercely and tossing firebrands in all directions, thousands upon thousands of people rising frantically about.
2: It was not not a flame, but a solid wall of fire which was hurled against the buildings and the houses did not burn. They were simply
1: destroyed. Destruction everywhere. The blaze finally died out the morning of Tuesday, October 10th, but not before taking a toll, $200 million in property damage, 100,000 people homeless, and at least 300 people dead.
2: The tragedy and trauma left a mark on the city physically and psychologically. We'll answer,
1: or attempt to answer,
2: a few questions about that fire now. I'll take on the first one. It comes from Angela Lee. She's a history major at the University of Chicago. Angela asked us, How did the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871 affect where Chicago's wealthy and poor lived? Let's start with where Chicago's rich and poor lived before the Great Fire. Historians say working class and poor areas were scattered around the city, and they concentrated near the river to be near jobs. These areas were more polluted, too, so people with better options didn't want to live there. As for the rich, they were also spread out. One wealthy enclave affected by the fire was just north of the river. Large homes there were owned by families with familiar names like McCormick and Ogden. As the fire burned that night, October 8, 1871, people found safety wherever they could, standing in the lake, out on the prairie, even in cemeteries. When the fire finally stopped after a day and a half, 100,000 people were homeless. An area four miles long and two-thirds of a mile wide was burned. Some churches took people in. Local authorities also built temporary barracks, but they had a change of heart. One said the barrack lifestyle was...
0: Proving unhealthy, both morally and physically.
2: But the urge for life to return to normal, to be back in permanent housing, was strong. So, back to our question, did the fire change where wealthy and poor Chicagoans lived? There are no comprehensive records showing exactly who resettled where. The consensus suggests people rebuilt and settled in the same areas they lived in before the fire. What did change after the fire was how the rich and poor rebuilt. And social class really comes into play here. Many people thought the city should just ban wooden buildings completely for the whole city. It makes sense, right? After the Great Chicago Fire, no wood buildings. The problem with that plan is that wood was cheap. More fireproof materials like brick and stone were expensive. And another thing about rebuilding, you might find it surprising, but back then it was common for Chicago's poor to own their homes. And it wasn't uncommon for wealthier folks to rent in prestigious areas. Here's historian Elaine Lewinick. People were furious, people, especially the German and Irish immigrants who lived on the the north side, who had been the ones most burned out by the fire. They were furious that they might not be able to rebuild. And, and, And it's amazing that they would say things like, we don't care if the city burns again. We need our own houses. And there was a subtext here. One historian told me people were arguing over the question of who's a good American? This debate played out in local newspapers. People argued for and against allowing wood construction.
0: Those are not true Americans, no matter where born, who would consign our laboring classes to the condition of proletaires by depriving them of a fair chance to live under their own roofs.
2: Those who wish to erect hovels on the north side.
0: No better than a traitor and an incendiary.
2: These different approaches to rebuilding came to a head on Monday night, January fifteenth, 1872. Immigrants from the north side marched by torchlight to City Hall. There are different accounts about what happened next. Elaine Lewinick again. They marched to City Hall and at least 1,500 of them walked into City Hall. People were afraid the building would break. The windows did break. They actually won their point. The fire limits were not extended to the north side. So north of Chicago Avenue and west of Wells Street... Immigrant homeowners were allowed to rebuild with wood. And in the rest of the city, buildings were supposed to be built only out of brick and stone. People didn't necessarily follow that rule, but that's another story. Also, right after the fire... 30,000 people moved to Chicago to help rebuild it. So you don't actually have the exact same population. A lot of new people moved to the suburbs. So the fire didn't change too drastically where Chicagoans who survived called home. But it's hard to argue that it undeniably changed the city.
1: The issue of where people ended up living is not the only question our Curious City listeners have been wondering about the Great Chicago Fire. I'm reporter Robert Lorizel, and I answered a question from Kevin Borgia, who's with me here today. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Robert. Kevin, you asked us a question that's kept us busy for the past few months. Why don't you remind us what it was? Yeah, I've been wondering, what would the city look like if the Great Chicago Fire hadn't happened? You know, answering a question like this is a bit like imagining alternate universes. There's no real one answer for how the city would be different. And one thing we had to think about was that there was another big fire in Chicago just three years after the one in 1871. But I talked to you about a dozen experts on this, and you can read all their what-if scenarios in an extensive story on our website. Right now, here in the studio, we're going to talk with one of those experts, Jen Mason-Garb, who is the Director of Interpretation and Research at the Chicago Architecture Foundation. Hi, Jen. Hi, Robert. So, Jen, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed about 18,000 buildings in 1871, And if the fire hadn't wiped out all those structures, what are some of the kinds of architecture that we might see more of in Chicago today?
3: I think one example that we might see more of in Chicago are Greek Revival buildings. These are incredibly common all over the country. It was one of the most popular styles. And cities that are Chicago's age have more of these. So Greek Revival buildings, are you'll recognize them because they look like they're plucked out of the Acropolis, right? They've got a white pediment big columns or columns built in, very symmetrical, maybe horizontal siding. We don't have a lot of these because they were lost in the fire. And so by the time we rebuilt, fashions and tastes had changed, and we just didn't rebuild Greek Revival buildings in the same way. One great surviving example of a Greek Revival home that we do have from the 1830s is the Clark House, which is at 18th and Indiana.
1: So I talked with a number of historians who suggested that if the fire hadn't happened— some of the architects that moved to Chicago in that era, including Louis Sullivan and John Wellborn Root, might not have come here. What's your take on that?
3: I think many of them would have come anyway. Now, exactly, I don't know if Sullivan would have come or you know something like that, but I think many would have come anyway in part because Chicago didn't have the building restrictions that many older East Coast cities had. They dictated in many ways what types of materials could be used and construction methods. And Chicago was a much younger city and didn't have those. So I think for new architects, it still would have offered opportunity. The architects would have come, but maybe not as quickly and maybe not in as large numbers or not with that sort of sense of new possibilities.
1: Jen, are there other ways that you think Chicago's built environment would look different because of the Chicago fire?
3: I wonder about terracotta. Terracotta is used as this fireproofing material originally on the interiors of buildings to wrap around columns and and put in between floors to fireproof the building. Then we start using it as an exterior material and then it becomes part of the ornamental kind of aesthetics of the building. I think the fire drove or fueled, if you will, <laughs> terracotta production because we had so many new laws uh, about fire and, and we were nervous. We, we were a city that had been burned and we needed to, uh, to think about how we wanted to protect our buildings.
1: How do you feel about these sort of what if questions? Is it, is it common for historians to wonder about alternate universes like this?
3: I think we just need to acknowledge that hypotheticals are, are difficult, and many historians don't like to kind of go walk down that path. But I think this sort of thought exercise is useful because it helps us understand cause and effect relationships between things. And it also helps us sort of tease out, in this case, in this story, the relationships between events and people and the built environment. And I think that's a worthy exercise to sort of untangle those things and see what led to what.
2: We've got way more to say on the Great Chicago Fire and how it shaped the city.
1: I asked 12 more experts about how Chicago would be different if the fire never happened. Their answers, along with imagined illustrations, are online at wbez.org slash curiouscity.
2: You can also find more online about how the fire shaped where people lived and how they rebuilt.
1: And maybe there's one more thing to consider in all this talk about how the fire changed the city.
2: We'll never know how the roughly 300 people who lost their lives might have changed the course of history and changed how Chicago would look if the fire never happened.
1: Reporting for this episode came from me, Robert Loerzell.
2: And me, Katie Clarkson. Special thanks to our partner, the Chicago Architecture Foundation.
1: Curious City is produced by Jennifer Brandel, WBEZ, and AIR, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism.
2: Curious City is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been following their curiosity and have been committed to brewing beers for Chicago that are celebrated worldwide by beer critics and beer lovers alike. More at GooseIsland.com. We don't need to be the only beer you drink. We just want to be the best you drink.
0: Remember the Great Chicago Fire this week. This is Curious City intern John Facile again. That 2014 story was one of our first collaborations with Chicago Architecture Foundation, and we're partnering with them again this fall to bring you even more stories about the city's built environment, including one about the origins of Chicago's revolving doors. All
3: right, here we go. I'm sure. We're in it together. Here we go. I'm always go. worried here we go. about getting stuck in yeah, one of these. Yeah, that's not the
2: best idea. Come yeah. on. Whoa, there we go.
0: That's coming up. You can submit your own questions about Chicago, the region, and its people. By visiting CuriousCity.WBEZ.org Or by calling 1-888-789-7752. Hey, intern, what are you doing? Huh uh nothing, nothing. I'm just just clean the studio. Gotta go.